one of the biggest things you learn when you get into the field and when you start, you know, working with people is it's not going to be about how you get results from yourself, but how you're going to be able to get results through other people and how you bring other people along. Great companies are all about the people. Good people become great leaders, mentors for work and life. Welcome to Learnings from Leaders, the PNG Alumni Podcast. I'm Raman Sagal, Recovering Marketer. And I'm Sharad Lal, the Curious Conversationist. Raman and I both got our start at PNG, the Procter & Gamble company, where we had the opportunity to work with some amazing people. And as you may know, many leaders across industries got their start at PNG. In this series, through conversations with fellow PNG alums, we hope to go deeper with the leaders you already know but want to know more about. It's kind of like bringing a microphone to a cup of coffee. On today's show, we're talking to PNG alumni leader Kenneth Chan. We spoke about creating one's authentic leadership style, how Asians can become strong leaders, and the importance of values during adversity. Here's a quick bio. Kenneth is a seasoned CEO and organization leader with over 30 years experience in Fortune 500 companies such as Procter & Gamble, McDonald's, PepsiCo, and Singapore Airlines. He was McDonald's Chief Executive Officer for China and Division President for Greater China between 2009 and 2015. He's led an organization of 150,000 employees and oversaw the fastest period of expansion during the time, opening over 1,000 restaurants in a span of five years. Kenneth was awarded the Overseas CEO Award at the Singapore Business Awards in 2014, as well as the Leading CEO Award by the Singapore Human Resource Institute in 2007. He now serves as a strategic advisor and executive mentor. What I loved about our conversation with Kenneth was his humility and depth. He's led big organizations, which was humble and vulnerable, and it's wonderful to see good people finish on top. In our discussion, we spoke about raising one's hand and taking risks, humility and confidence, empathetic leadership, vision versus execution, being organized to manage mental health, and a lot more. The episode is packed with wisdom, honesty, and depth. Overall, I feel this episode will inspire you to lean into paradoxes, calm and aggressive, vulnerable and strong, humble and confident as you evolve as a leader. But let's dive right in. We hope you'll enjoy our conversation with Kenneth Chan. Hi, Kenneth. Good morning to you here in Singapore. How are you doing today? Very good, Sharad. How are you? I'm doing well. Welcome to the PNG Alumni Podcast. Really good and a huge honor to have you on the show. Thank you. Kenneth, you've done so many wonderful things through your career. You've been a great CEO. You worked with companies in Singapore, overseas. You've written a book. You've mentored people. But before we dig into all that, I'd love to understand who was Kenneth before all this. If there's a meaningful story you could share from your childhood, that'd be great to hear. Well, first of all, thanks for having me here. My name is Kenneth and I was born in Singapore. And the interesting thing, I was born when Singapore got its independence in 1965. So you could say I'm the same age as Singapore. I've celebrated my birthdays together with the country all these years. Well, I I suppose in the early years of Singapore, things were a lot easier. I was fortunate enough to be able to live my life as a kid. Uh, I went to school here. I really enjoyed myself with my friends and I have a whole bunch of, uh, I have a cohort of friends who I continue to keep in touch until now. So very fortunate with that. You know, study was a big preoccupation as you can imagine in this part of the world. But at the same time, we were all very much more, you know, carefree and easy in how we approach life, right? We studied, but we played hard as well. Uh, I recently recalled going to a university and this young lady Small petite lady comes up to me and goes, my name is, you know, Suyin, but I'm a CEO of my company now as well. We were never like that at that time. We were just (laughs) trying to get through life and, you know, trying to figure out, you know, what to do next. When I was young, it was interesting. You know, I I spent my formative years in Singapore, but my folks were, you know, working the airlines at the time. And so they traveled to many parts of the world and they were stationed in other countries as well. So when I was 14 years old, uh, at a very young age, I sort of took the risk and said, why don't I follow you to the US and try and figure out, you know, if I can path a life there at that time. 
So I picked myself up one day and, I, and at 14 years old, I went to the US and went into high school there, not knowing what to expect, not knowing how I would fit in. And uh, it was a very interesting time. I had to sort of adjust my whole psyche, my mindset to fit in, you know, and one of the most difficult things is trying to fit in in high school and yet alone fit in in a different environment with a different culture as well. And I think those formative years helped me to sort of get out of my shell of being a bit scared, a bit low in confidence and try to, you know, exert myself uh, in, in that environment. So that was very interesting. And, and, you know, like all of us in Singapore, you know, after our studies there in high school, after university, we all had to come back to Singapore to serve our national service, to be in the army for, at that time, two and a half years. And again, that was really a big leveler. You come in straight from, you know, this different land in the US and you are immersed, you know, with a group of people of all races, of all backgrounds, of all diverse cultures, you know, and just, you know, putting your heads down together and trying to meet your objectives, get the job done, working together and, you know, learning from each other as well. So those were really my formative years before working, I would say. Thank you for sharing that, Kenneth. And what I got was a young kid goes to the US and you're forced to become confident. You're forced to speak up. You're forced to come out of your shell. And that's where confidence developed, which led you through maybe your career later on. And then in national service in Singapore, it was collaboration, working together. And yeah. then probably these two traits came together as you rose in the corporate ladder. Uh, I would say that those two traits were formative at that time. Yes. Uh, I still have my usual crises of confidence. I still am trying to exert myself a little bit more. And, you know, I think those things did manifest, you know, very much when I started my career and as I moved along my journey into leadership roles. But what I've done is to try to, you know, recognize those shortcomings or challenges. And I've tried to then practice and learn how to, you know, become a better leader despite these uh, shortcomings. So much of humility, uh, Kenneth. You've, you've achieved so much and it's heartening for people to hear that even someone who's achieved so much is still sometimes has those pangs of uh, lack of confidence. And then, of course, the humility comes in the way and you learn and get there. I'd love to understand uh, the early 90s when you joined Procter & Gamble in Singapore, if, I'm, if I understand right, looking after Singapore and Malaysia in, in marketing. What was that experience like? Yeah, if I were really honest, I joined P&G not understanding that there was this rigorous interview process <laughs> with many people who were applying for the job. I just put my hands up and said, you know, that sounds interesting. And I went through the rigmarole of all the testing and all the interviews. And lo and behold, by chance, two of us got into that cohort. This was back in the 1990s and we were under the brand management, um, you know, department. Uh, I started my job as a brand assistant, uh, managing hair care. And at that time in Singapore, we launched Rejoice for the first time, two in one, uh, both in Singapore and Malaysia. I would say they were extremely good years of building your fundamental basics of marketing, but also business and logic, I would say, right? I remember many things well. I remember the PNG one pages where <laughs> you had to be concise, crisp, be able to articulate the headlines. Uh, even though all of us sort of cheated by reducing the font sizes to make sure it fit the one page. I formed a lot of friendships because all of us worked very hard with very smart people around me. And up to today, I would tell you that I still keep in touch with that cohort of marketing friends. And we do meet up every quarter and, you know, reflect on all the good times that we've had, the fond memories of P&G, also the interesting things now that all of us are doing in our separate careers. So 35 years ago, you met these people and you worked right. together and, and you're still in touch. That's so powerful. And interestingly, you said that uh, you would reduce the font size in the one pages. By the time 2000 came along and I joined in 2002, they got to know that trick. So they didn't I'm let sure you they change. The, they knew that from they, the start. <laughs> they didn't let you change the font sizes. So it was those one pages were difficult and everyone has difficult stories about that. But it taught us a lot. Do you remember any challenging times, whether it was PNG or anywhere early in your career, which shaped you as you went through? Many things. I would say, you know, one, one big lesson I learned in PNG was not to be so afraid of failure. You know, one of my innate personalities, and maybe it's this Asian upbringing is that we like to save face and we don't like to confront failure. I remember doing a product test on one of the brands, I'll leave that unnamed. 
and the efficacy wasn't so good. But we did it in front of consumers, uh, with our agencies and those sorts of things. I came back to my manager and said, everything went well, all hunky-dory. Somebody did come up to him and tell him that it didn't go so well. And I was, as you can imagine, told off and reprimanded. And what I learned from that was, I think it's okay when things are not working as well. It may not be your fault, but let's be objective about it. Let's learn from it. Let's be transparent so that the main goal for all of us is to figure out how to improve things, right? What's working, what's not working, how do we do better? And if I had taken that attitude then, I probably would have contributed better into the success of that product. Um, so since then, that has molded me to be extremely transparent in my communication and to demand transparency also from the people I work with because I know it's not about anybody's failure necessarily. It's about things happen. It's the real world. And as long as we learn from it, as long as we improve, as long as we don't make too many mistakes, you know, I think all of us move in the right direction and do better. What a good point, uh, Kenneth. And I think it will be extremely useful for many of us, like you said, Asians, to hear that we want to save face, don't want to be the uh, one giving the bad news. So we kind of cover it up, but there's a lesson to be learned. Now, after PNG, how did you move forward in your career? I know there were many interesting things that happened. How, how did the career unfold? Well, I was, um, I was sad to leave PNG, but I was asked to uh, join McDonald's. You know, I love the brand. I've been eating McDonald's since I was a young kid. Uh, I was the first McDonald's kid in Singapore when they first opened. And, you know, McDonald's does have a lot of firepower with regards to marketing dollars and resources. It's one of those brands where you can really shape the conversation within the market that you're in. So I thought it'd be a good challenge. I joined as an assistant marketing manager. You know, funny thing, if you had told me at that time when I joined as an assistant marketing man manager that one day I would be managing director of the business, I would have said, you're crazy, not me. <laughs> it's not going to happen to me at all. But I, but I did that and I learned many other things. You know, the fundamentals of P&G obviously buoyed me and helped me, you know, do that job well. And because I did relatively well there, my boss along the way, the MD there said, you know, we, we kind of lack more leadership talent for the organization and we'd like you to maybe fast track yourself and get into more leadership roles. But if you want to do that, you need to go run the restaurants because that is the core product, right? That is where we see our customers. That's where we make the money. And, you know, I was hesitant. I want to be a marketer for the rest of my life, but I was nudged. I had good people who counseled me and I did go into operations. And, you know, I remember well, my boss at the time telling me that one of the biggest things you learn when you get into the field and when you start you know, working with people is, it's not going to be about how you get results from yourself, but how you're going to be able to get results through other people and how you bring other people along. So didn't realize the power of that. But when I did go into the field, those words rang true, right? And so in order for me to build credibility and trust and respect as people, I knew that I had to work even harder and put myself in the front line to be an example. So I would be the first ones to raise my hands, to wash the toilets, to clean the floors. Of course, we serve a lot of customers, cooked a lot of product. And, uh, and over time, I was able to move up the ranks in operations and become the head of operations there. And eventually, you know, became the managing director for the business as well. You know, valuable lessons along the way. Very valuable. And I'd love to dig into that leadership style. But before we do that, what interested me was uh, there was this fork in the road where you were very interested in marketing, but somebody told you, hey, go into the GM route. And there are many folks out there who may be facing this fork right now. What was your decision process like? What was your thought process? And how did you come to the decision to move towards the GM rule? Yeah, you know, I would say that it was a bit of uh, luck and maybe a bit of a uh, coercion. I, I have not been the most ambitious person in my life. I've always thought that if I do well and work hard, opportunities will come my way. I soon come to realize now that that's probably not the case. You have to raise your hands. You have to engage. You have to put yourself out there. So I would say at that time, to be honest, I was nudged and coerced to do that, right? But once I did that, it really, you know, opened my eyes in 
seeing different perspectives. It opened my eyes to thinking that, you know, apart from what I'm always doing functionally or whether I'm stuck within a marketplace here, if there were an opportunity for me to do something else, something which I think I might be capable of doing and enjoy to do, I should more sooner than later raise my hands and take on that opportunity. You will see later on in my career that I was always hesitant. Uh, I continue to be a hesitant leader, but, you know, and later on, if we talk about my book, I'll tell you my sharing for my book is to encourage people who are like me to be better engaged, to take the opportunities earlier and not wait for these opportunities later in life because these opportunities are not so forthcoming all the time. What a wonderful lesson. And we'll go into that. And I was very curious that at that stage where you were doing well, but you were hesitant to make any move, but a manager saw something in you and said, hey, you need to fast track. What do you think he saw in you at that time? What are the core traits that managers look for people at the starting point or the younger point of their career because of which they want them to move forward? Well, I'd like to think that there were maybe a few things that they saw in me. Number one was, given my formative years of working in the army, working in teams, I played a lot of sports. I was able to showcase some leadership traits at the time as a young manager, uh, being able to bring teams together, being able to lead teams to achieve an objective. So that's one piece of that. The second piece is, um, you know, being a marketing person, but not necessarily because of that. Uh, I've always tried to find solutions that are not so obvious or mediocre, but to try to spend a bit more time trying to find more elegant solutions, solutions that are more creative, solutions that are a bit more differentiated. Because in the business world, it's easy to find the obvious solutions. It probably takes a little bit more time to find more differentiated and creative solutions to be able to compete more effectively, right? So I think that's certainly one thing. And then I would say that the last thing was just being able to manage the different stakeholders, even at a young age. So people who were working with me or for me, at the same time, people I was working for and the stakeholders around them to be able to sort of, you know, socialize the things that we wanted to get done so that when it came time to decision-making, you know, those decisions became a lot easier and smoother. So the whole process of managing the business, managing the issues became a lot easier for everybody. It seems like that even though you didn't believe in yourself, you were already functioning as a leader at a young age. Without knowing any of that. Without <laughs> knowing any of that. It came naturally to you. And, and now I'd love to dig into the leadership skills. And there's so many interesting things that you mentioned about being the inspirational leader, people looking at you, you're doing things and, and being able to do that. You talked about humility earlier. You talked about even cleaning the floor, doing whatever's needed. How did you develop your leadership style as you first became a leader? And how did that evolve over time? Yeah, you know, I think the first thing was to recognize some of my innate personality and maybe my, you know, heritage of being an Asian leader. I am, if you've taken the Maya Briggs test, you know, I am an INFJ, an introverted, let's say, okay? And there are 20 questions on being an introvert and I'm 20 out of 20 introvert. So with that starting point, it is interesting to see how I moved on to leader big, bigger businesses and large organizations. But, you know, I ha I've had to practice and I've had to learn and I've had to perform as well. So one of the things that I was not very good at was um, I, I did start from a point of uh, an environment of rote learning in Singapore. You know, our education system tends to reward people having good marks, regardless of how you get them. And in the old days, the way we got them was through memorization. <laughs> All <you> of know. us. <laughs> and if you did well, without knowing necessarily what the content was, uh, you could still get a good grade but without understanding context. And in today's world, you need to be able to understand the perspectives and the context of the issues so that you can find a solution that's not linear, but one that's possibly a bit more elegant. The other thing is, you know, I've really learned from the start about leadership from the top in terms of, do I really want to be just this directive leader? You see a lot of Asian companies where it's really the boss, the patriarch or the matriarch on top and he or she barking directions, giving orders, and everybody at the bottom being very loyal, following the leader, and uh, getting things done. And in that environment, I think you'll find that there is no incentive for anybody to speak out. 
because if you're loyal, you are well regarded by the boss and you're well compensated. But that environment does not engender, you know, development for the people. It doesn't engender empowerment. It doesn't allow people to think a little bit more and grow and develop. What I have been trying to do is create these environments where my job would be to provide direction, motivation, resources to the teams, and then empower as much as I can the people closest to the customer, the people who manage their bigger base of employees to run their own businesses with me at the back, guiding them, you know, giving them the right resources, but letting them run the business. And I say this, you know, from a, a industry like McDonald's where, you know, a lot of our restaurants run like mini business. I tell my people in the headquarters, I tell them all the time that we don't see a single customer in the office and we don't make a single cent in the office. Everything happens in the restaurant. So our job is really to find ways to support them. Very interesting. And as you moved with McDonald's to, to the big part of your career, you moved to China. So there's a kid from Singapore. You, of course, had exposure in the US. And then you moved to this big market of China. And I understand in a short period of time, there were a thousand restaurants that you opened. How were you challenged then? And was there any shift in your leadership style at that point of time? Yeah, certainly. So again, I was nudged to move to China. I had been asked a few years before I left to go and I had said no. I had never been to China in my life before. My Chinese is not very good. <laughs> and uh, and my wife didn't really want to go then either as well. But, you know, I think like most companies, P&G being one of them as well, you know, McDonald's did invest in me in many different leadership programs. And the turning point then for me to go was I had attended a global leadership program. I had great mentors who were guiding me along the way and coaching me into how I could step up to bigger positions. I had seen my peers within that program also moving up and stepping up into major markets. And then I thought, okay, maybe it's time for me to give back for all the things that the company has given me as well. And so I raised my hand and I went. And I remember going to China for my first time to take over the market uh, in the middle of winter. And some of you have been to Shanghai, you know, the Lupu Bridge, going up this bridge and seeing the city of Shanghai opening up in the middle of the night and getting bigger and bigger. And I was wondering to myself, what in the world am I doing here? This is just one small part of one small city and part of a bigger country. You know, I hope I know what I'm doing. And again, this comes back to my vulnerabilities of sometimes having this, you know, imposter syndrome. Am I really the one that should be running this country and leading these thousands of people here? And so when I went there, you know, I, I moved there from a small market like Singapore very easy to manage, you know, a very controlled environment into this sort of environment, which was a little bit more VUCA, you know, a bit more uncertain, etc. You know, one of the things we had to really pin down there was to develop a go-to-market strategy. It wasn't just about open restaurants and they will come. It was a more holistic thinking about where do we go? What are we actually trying to do? What are the mega trends we're trying to capture? the urbanization, the growing middle class, that leads you to understanding then where to place your restaurant openings. It leads you to where to place your whole support system, your supply chain, your logistics. It leads you to the ideas of, you know, how am I going to develop systems to be able to manage all of our people? Because we're starting from a base of 50,000 and we're moving up by to hundreds of thousands of people. How do I train them fast? How do I engage them? How do I bring them into leadership positions? Uh, so a more systematic and holistic strategy of how we go to market. And I think those foundations has been put in place well to the point that my current team there, who are my succession team and they're still there, are now able, able to open and manage restaurants at a much faster clip than I did at the time when I was there. That is so wonderful to hear. When you leave that legacy, you develop the people. And just for us to picture the time, what was the time that you went to China? I know you spent 15 yeah, years. Yeah, I was there at a good time. I, mean, I was there at, um, at the back of 2008. This was just after the financial crisis yes. around the world. The rest of the world had come out of that financial crisis by 2009. And China was lagging behind for maybe about a year, right? So it was a little bit of a difficult time that we were facing at the onset. But at the same time, you look at it as an opportunity. If everybody faces difficult times, the question is, as a brand, as a market leader, 
how do you then capture the opportunity and think about the longer term? So, you know, it was an opportune time for us to hire the best talent. It was a great time for us to find great real estate sites so that we could start investing now and build that foundation so that when the market took off again, we were right there to capture that opportunity. And during this time or even before that, who were some of your mentors and advisors who helped you? Yeah, you know, I, I, I look to examples from many people within the organization to really think about how they thought about the business. So one of my mentors was eventually became the CEO and he was a very good people person. He managed to bring teams together. He managed to inspire people. Every time you meet him, you feel good. I tried to emulate myself to his sort of empathetic leadership. This leading me to, you know, one of my favorite quotes from Maya Angelou, who's this American poet. Yes. She says, you know, people will forget what you said. People will forget what you did, but they will never forget how you made them feel. So working with people, despite having you to have tough conversations or praising or recognizing people at every interaction, you just want to do it with respect and making people feel good. So one of my mentors was him, a fantastic leader. One of my mentors was also uh, a gentleman from Procter & Gamble a long time ago. And he was the gentleman who, you know, sort of pulled me out of mediocrity. He was always challenging us into finding more creative solutions and challenging us into saying how we could be a bit more competitive. And, and that stuck with me. And, and, you know, one of the things that I try to encourage my teams is to make sure that we just don't settle. We try to get out of mediocrity because that's really the killer of the business and any momentum. But we spend more time and effort, especially during our planning process, to think more strategically, to get a plan that's not just numbers driven, but to get a plan that can inspire your consumers, a plan that can inspire your employees. And that's the litmus test. Every time we come up with a plan or a strategy for the next, you know, phase of business growth, the real filter is, are our employees inspired with this idea? And if they're not, I think we go back and lock ourselves in the room and try to, you know, craft it out a little bit more. So two great, you know, sorts of different mentors, one on the business side and one from the people side. I loved your word, empathetic leadership. And, and that strikes such a huge chord because it's doing right things, being respectful. Uh, but also doing the right thing from a business standpoint. So I was wondering if there's any story that just comes to mind where it was a difficult time and, and through the lens of empathetic leadership, you were able to manage that. Yeah, I mean, many, many times. Uh, I, I would say maybe the most recent time would be, I think all of us face COVID-19. And the context here is I came back as a operating partner for the Singapore-Malaysia business. So this was really a business that we sort of owned and I could make those decisions a little bit easier. But it is interesting that during those times, you know, are you able to live your values, the values that you shared with your organization? It's easy to do those things in peacetime. How do you manifest those things in wartime? And, you know, one of the mantras we always say is that we're a people company. So when it came time to COVID, in this Singapore example, we were asked to close the restaurants for two weeks. That has never happened before in the history of Singapore for 40 years. And we got the news in a day and we had to call all of our people on a Zoom uh, webcast that same evening. And the first thing I said to all my team is, let's think about what would be foremost in our people's minds. And that clearly would be job security and, and wages. So I said, the first thing that we needed to do, apart from talking about the logistics of how we're going to manage this closure and the COVID-19 protocols and those sorts of things was to say to our people that don't worry about this. It's a blip in our business. Your jobs are secure and your wages are secure. Go back, take some rest, look after your people, get ready for the reopening and then look after your customers. So with that peace of mind out of the way, I think a lot of people, you know, took comfort in that. You might recall also that during COVID, we had a lot of Malaysian employees who would commute daily from Johor to Singapore. And these borders closed on one day. And within that one day, they had to make a decision of coming down. We had 700 employees who came down to Singapore and then the borders closed. We made a intentional decision to 
give them accommodation and allowances. And that accommodation, you know, went on for two and a half years. We didn't know the borders were closing <laughs> two and a half years, but that went on for two and a half years. And we were probably the only company who did that. And so, again, I would say, to be fair, it was a little bit easier for me because we had ownership of the company and we could make those calls. It was a financial strain, of course. But I think that's an example of, you know, an empathetic decision. It was a financial burden for us, but I, I see this as, you know, a blip in the long history of business we've had and the long business we're going to have. The, at the first sign of uh, pain, do we abandon all our values or do we use this opportunity to really showcase to our, to our employees that what we say is what we're going to do? We were fortunate enough that all our employees were very thankful. They were loyal to us. And when COVID-19 opened up again, we certainly had less of an issue with suddenly this human resource and manpower shortage, right? And we were able to then again, you know, capture the marketplace uh, more effectively and quickly. What a wonderful point, Kenneth. It is during those difficult crisis times that empathetic leadership gets shown, values get shown, because that's the time when most people let it go. And if you're able to do that during that time, and of course, manage the business, but get that message through, uh, such an important point. One of the things that we talked about earlier, and maybe we can spend more time, is your book, Asians in Charge. And I know you're very, very passionate about Asians coming out and doing well. So I'd love to understand more about the book and more what Asians can do to become great leaders. Yeah, I think it, the book was written so that I could share my journey and my, you know, vulnerabilities. Also, I try not to show these vulnerabilities all the time, of course, right? So that you know, people who maybe share the same journey or feel the same way, at least have somebody they can resonate with. And when I say vulnerabilities and, you know, sometimes having crises for confidence or sometimes being insecure, I don't say that in terms of not being, also being able to be a leader that's formidable, that's successful, that's competitive, that's aggressive as well, right? But it's these innate things within you that if you don't control, it might be a bit difficult for you to raise your hand, get to the next position and you know, do well and lead people. So, you know, the book really revolves around a few things. One, especially is uh, Asian leaders tend to be very good at execution. You know, given a task, we're like a, a dog biting a bone. We just won't <laughs> let go. And we'll drive for KPIs, we'll drive for timelines. You know, we'll do a lot of busy work. But sometimes uh, that sort of heads down approach becomes very myopic. You don't see what's around you, perspective. Sometimes you're doing the wrong things and doing it very in a very busy way. My, my suggestion is to obviously embrace that execution strength, but to maybe have a little bit more of a heads up approach. And being heads up means I, I need to think about things a little bit more. I need to be a bit more strategic. I need more perspectives. I need to just not just deal with my own personal networks and quantity and the people I know around me, but I need to probably stretch out the network for people who I don't no, I might not be comfortable with, but who can give me better ideas and better perspectives, for example. And, you know, I, I, I used the example of Foxconn as a company and Apple. Both are great companies. I'm not dissing any company at all, for sure. Foxconn, boy, is a $88 billion market cap company, but Apple's a $3 trillion market cap company. Foxconn does a little bit of OEM and manufacturing. Foxconn is a type of company that's more creative, host the IPs and those sorts of things. My suggestion is that if we could just be a great company like Foxconn, but level ourselves up in terms of having more value creation, uh, I think it will augur well for our businesses and it will augur well for our own leadership to be able to, you know, just move up the value chain a little bit more. So that's one, that's, uh, that's execution and how we can be a bit more strategic there. The, the, the second part about you know, being a leader is just to show up and earn your place. You know, I remember very well when I was leading China and I was probably the only Asian who went up to the global leadership team for our annual, you know, planning meetings and those sorts of things. I remember when it came time to questions and, and comments, everybody was racing to put up their hand and to ask questions and to give comments. And a typical Asian mentality like me, I would sit there thinking, Okay, I, I kind of want to ask a question, but I'm not sure my, whether my question would provide any value. I kind of want to give a comment, but it might be a stupid comment. So I stayed quiet throughout the session. And throughout the meeting, I didn't contribute at all. 
and I felt silly, I felt ashamed. I did not earn my place at that table. So understanding my weaknesses or my shortcomings, I know that I needed to do better. And so before the next few meetings, I practiced, I prepared, I prepared questions and, you know, got into the fray, you know, thereafter, right? And, you know, this practice makes perfect. And after a while, I feel more comfortable speaking up, right? And so I think a lot of it is practice. Uh, a lot of it is just getting out there, putting yourself out there so that you can gain this sort of confidence and be part of the team and people accept you after that. And I'll tell you that my questions and comments sometimes were fantastic. Everybody acknowledge the different perspective and ideas, but sometimes the question and comments were silly and it just faded into the quiet. But nevertheless, I put myself out there. Very empowering message. And Kenneth, what I noticed was, if I can put it as holding paradoxes is stuff that you did where you're vulnerable, but you're also strong. You're humble, but you're also confident. And to me, it looks like there's a part of Asia which is humble and quiet, but you can keep that it's not discarding it, but you can add another element and you find the balance. And that is where Asians can be in charge. Would that be a good way of looking at it? And how can we look at it that way? No, I think that's exactly the way to look at it. One of the thoughts is you don't want to change your own personality and character. You are who you are because of your upbringing and, you know, because of, you know, all the things that have shaped you. So the question is, how do you keep your own leadership voice? in your own personality and style, but at the same time, be effective and use the resources around you to get to the end objective. So I, I know where I'm weak at uh, and I know my challenges. So I also practice a lot of uh, shared leadership. Number one, I get people around me clearly that are very capable and very good. And I spend a lot of time working with them one-on-one, -on -one, sharing my leadership with them, um, we have a lot of one-on-one com one -on -one communication where we talk about issues, we align our objectives, our goals, we talk about their people. But when we come out from those meetings, they are the ones in charge of the business of the project. They will get all the recognition. I will give them all the support. And it becomes more of a, a collective leadership where it's not dependent on one person, but it's, it's really dependent on the strong leadership team that really achieves the results, right? And with that, stronger collective leadership team, it allows me to work the results through the way that I'm comfortable with. Not necessarily with me being the front man all the time, but, you know, working with the rest of the team to get that done. It was interesting. I was talking to someone else on, on leadership and one of the things they said is that when you become a CEO, the biggest lesson you need to learn is you're not an expert. You need to, like you said, surround yourself with smart expert people and then they're the ones who can move the organization forward. So that's wonderful to hear. Now, Kenneth, changing tracks a bit, I know you've been in places which are not your home country, whether it was education, China, and other places. Are there any instances where you faced adversity or maybe a little bit of discrimination as being an outsider? And how did you look to handle that? Uh, I've not really faced, I would say, that type of adversity or discrimination. I had faced, for example, when I went to China, one of my biggest concerns was why would people from this huge, thriving country listen to this, you know, young person from a much smaller uh, marketplace? What does he know? We're such a big, massive country and you're coming from a small place. And, and what I've come to realize is that people are people around the world. As long as you can figure out a way to, number one, of course, drive a successful business, because at the end of the day, Everybody wants to be on a winning team. Uh, nobody wants to be on a losing team. So if the business is not successful, no matter how good your leadership is, I think people will jump off the ship. But the other side of it from a personal standpoint would be, if I can continue to add value to you or to my employees, I'm teaching you, I'm developing you, you're learning new things, you're finding out that you can do things even better, you're capable of more. I think people generally respond to that. And people will want to then follow you. They want to listen and see what else is coming from your mind, for example. And, and that curiosity at the initial phase probably leads to respect and trust. And throughout my career, I think that level of trust has always been important in managing people of all diversity, people of different nationalities. That's why I like to spend a lot of time with one-on-one -on -one conversations. Because within that safe space, I'm able to be very frank. 
I'm able to be very honest. I'm able to motivate. And everything I say, whether good, bad, hard, easy, over time, all my direct reports understand that it's not about me trying to either put them down or give them unearned praises. It's all coming from a place of just wanting them to do better and wanting the business to do better. And when they understand that and when they realize that, this relationship becomes very strong and they are able to trust me, I'm able to trust them and they are able to speak freely to me as well. And that just generates a lot of uh, good information and, and good thinking all around the organization. It becomes more of a thriving organization. Yeah, so I think regardless of the environment or the context, you know, building trust and having respect is probably, you know, one of the most critical things to make that a positive environment. What a wonderful point. And you can build trust in a foreign country. It takes time. You can build it. And like I think you mentioned, the first point is the first step is respect. They respect you as a leader. They know you, they're going to grow through you. The business is going to grow. And the second part, you're empathetic. You understand them. And with that, you can go through this. So that, that's wonderful to understand. Now, Kenneth, as you were climbing the ladder, becoming a CEO with so much of work, how did you balance work and life? And how do you do that even now? I think if anybody were to ask you about me, they would say that I'm probably one of the most organized persons around, right? In order for me to do many things, I feel that I have to be super organized. And I'm not saying that to the point of not being flexible and nimble, but I'm just saying that in order for me to do things that I want to do, want to do for the business, want to do for my family, I have to organize my time well. I look at my calendar five times a day when I was probably working probably more, not so much to see what's coming up next, but to kind of project ahead of time to make sure that I'm able to get to the most important things, to the most important meetings that matter, to see the most important people that matter, for example, and to meet the organization systematically as well. So being organized is very important. And that's why in order for my own personal uh, well-being, I have no choice but sometimes to wake up at five o'clock in the morning so that I can get my workout and exercise out of the way because I know the rest of the day ain't going to be so easy to fit those things in. and. You know, I would say that being organized allows you to make sure that you settle your people's work first before you settle your own work. I want to be sure that my people have time and space to be aligned with what we want to do and get the things done versus me always interjecting at every woman thought that I have, you know, interjecting them and wasting their time and, you know, disrupting what they're trying to do, uh, especially when I want them to lead the business as well. So I think being organized is you know, in my book, a very critical piece of being able to do many things at the same time, taking care of your own well-being and your family as well. Absolutely. Increases capacity and you can manage energy. I'm very curious on how you organize yourself. Is there, whether there are tools or is there time you set aside and how do you do that if there's anything you can share with us? Yeah. I don't want to be anal about it, but you know, uh, I, I, I try to systemize my calendars. So in all my organizations, I would systemize my calendars, number one. Systemizing the calendar means that I'm going to have a master calendar which lays out through the year first as on a broad perspective, all the important interactions that need to happen. So I know that if I do that, I will meet every part of my business, you know, at least twice a year or whatever that is. I know that I will meet my direct reports every month for sure. Of course, there can be ad hoc meetings, but for sure. Uh, I know that I'm interjecting myself in the critical projects and making time for that. So that's on a broad basis. Uh, on, on, a, on a tactical basis, on an ongoing basis, I, I would say that, you know, uh, I spend a lot of time for myself as well because I'm, I need to be the one leading the charge with regards to strategic thinking. Uh, I do do a lot of uh, block out times thinking time. So uh, I've learned how to use my assistants well. Uh, they would manage my time, but they, I would also tell them that these are block out times for me. And in these block out times, I'm either using it time not to be interrupted, to think about the business, to think about key issues so that I'm much more well thought and organized in my head before I randomly spew out nonsense to the rest of my folks as well. I try to organize my thinking and organize my thoughts uh, better. And so in that respect, systemizing, you know, one part of the calendar, organizing my own thinking time so that I can be more planful and thoughtful in how I approach the business and people allows me to then, you know, navigate my way through the many different uh, 
you know, things that will come your way during the day. And planning your calendar, is it like on a daily basis or a weekly basis just to check and move things around and get yourself ready? Uh, generally on a, generally on a, on a monthly basis at, at the minimum, right? And of course on a daily basis, yeah. So, uh, if you look at my calendar now, even though I am sort of retired, I'm well planned out for the rest of uh, the next two months. You just talked about being retired and I know you're working in a few boards. So I'd love to understand what you're doing and spending time on now. Yeah, I don't like to use the word retired because it's such a lazy word. And in fact, I'm probably moving around more than I was when I was working. So it was interesting when I saw the F1 race recently in Singapore, I, I thought this retired analogy could be a bit different. It's more of a retiring my car. Mm -hmm. uh, so maybe it's a different track. Got it. Uh, maybe I'm a bit slower, understand. Uh, but, you know, putting that new tire on or retiring to try to be as optimal as I can, regardless of the car or the track or whatever I'm doing, right? So I, I take it with that spirit of being retired. Uh, when I moved away from the corporate or working life, uh, one of the few things that I wanted to do was to get a little bit more in the alternate protein space uh, or sustainable food space. So I've been learning quite a bit about that. I'm on some of the boards in some of those uh, activities. That's one area. I've also wanted to spend some time to advocate for Asian leadership. So I wrote this book. Asians in charge. And I've been doing a lot of sharing and talks uh, with different institutions to, you know, try to encourage and, you know, give people a little bit more understanding of my journey so that they can improve their journey a bit better. And the last part is, you know, bucket list stuff, right? Uh, I love music. So I've recently joined two choirs. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm learning to play the piano. My wife say that the kids next door who also play piano laugh at me all the time when I practice. <laughs> And then, you know, I spend time to travel and exercise and do those sorts of things. What so I would say it's about 50% yeah. work and 50%, you know, my own stuff. What a wonderful life. I, even I'm learning to play the piano to make sure the kids don't laugh. I use headphones. <laughs> my kids Good point. Laugh. I should do that. Yes. In terms of, it's very clear why you're uh, helping in leadership with Asians. Uh, I was wondering what was the motivation behind sustainable proteins? Is, is there anything story to that? Well, because, you know, I've been in the food and beverage business for so long, you know, I can see where the megatrends are going. I do feel that there are a lot of very good, innovative ideas and very useful and necessary ideas. Uh, I just thought that if I could help a little bit in terms of helping them bridge the gap from ideation to scaling up to commercialization, uh, that would be a good thing for everybody, not just for the businesses, but also for all of our environments as well. So I'm trying to see how I can best fit in, into that role and then we'll see how things go from there. What are your plans for the future? What is exciting for you about the future? You know, I know that in my current uh, situation, this 50% allocation of work right now will probably start diminishing. So every year I do am a bit more planful as well and I try to layer on the next thing that I could do to maintain that level of uh, activity and work. So my next step is uh, now that I have a bit more time, it's my second year of getting into retirement. I do want to spend a bit more time on community work and charitable work. And, and my wife uh, and I are keen to start, you know, a little bit of a, some charity giving and foundation. And so if I could, you know, lend my help there in those areas, that would be very fulfilling to me as well. So I think that's the little bit of a ramp up I'll do outside of just focusing on the business side of things. Uh, in the final round, we'll get to some rapid fire sure. questions, some some fun stuff. Uh, what's your favorite guilty pleasure? Binging on TV and movies. One naughty incident from national service, which you can speak about. Maybe not naughty incident, but interesting. And yep. Maybe interesting thing yep. was, uh, I, I was the record holder for the standard obstacle course for many years until they changed the obstacle course. Oh, wow. <laughs> that is very cool. Okay. I used to be a runner. And okay. so that helped. Very cool. What's a song that you've been singing in the choir? Favorite one? We sing many different songs. And in this choir, we sing, you know, uh, classical, we sing, you know, contemporary, we sing cultural songs as well. And so there isn't really a favorite one. Everyone I find interesting and I love, you know, blending my voices with the choir. But I've got an Asian leadership story about choir, if yeah. you like to hear that. Sure. Again, back to this whole thing about raising your hands. Uh, I know recently uh, my choir master asked my men's choir group 
And he said, you know, we have this solo part and who would like to take on the solo part? And I know everybody wanted to do the solo part, but nobody raised their hands. My Spanish counterpart, my Spanish colleague raised his hand and said, I, I wouldn't mind trying that. And he got the part and everybody lost out. It was just an interesting Great example in real life that, that these things happen as well. Absolutely. Favorite chicken rice place in Singapore? Wow, so many. I, I can't say it, but maybe it's Buntongki. Oh, wow. Just, just because of the, uh, the way they do the chicken. Yeah, I love the chili there as well. Thank you, uh, Kenneth. We've had such a wonderful conversation. But before we go, uh, one final piece of advice or challenge to the next generation. Maybe not a challenge, but maybe all the things I've been talking about with yeah. regards to Asian leadership. It's more of an encouragement that if somebody like me, who, you know, may not be the most articulate person, still continues to have a little bit of a crisis of confidence, some self-doubt can still, you know, stiffen myself up and take on different roles, increase my network of people and be courageous in terms of my decisions. I would encourage everybody to then, you know, think about, you know, how they can also step up a little bit more, raise their hands and get engaged so that, you know, you can fulfill your full potential earlier than what I did. Thank you, Kenneth. It has been an enlightening, wonderful conversation. It's so refreshing to see leaders like you who've got humility and confidence. And that's the way uh, forward for so many of us in Asia. So thank you very much for being such a great role model and giving so much back. Wish you all the very best. Thank you for having me, Shar. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe and leave us a review on your favorite podcasting platform. For show notes about this episode, links to things mentioned, or requests for sponsorship, visit pgalums.com slash podcast or email pgalumpod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Learnings from Leaders is a production of the PNG Alumni Network, a global nonprofit founded by former PNGers committed to community, enrichment, and philanthropy. With more than 45,000 registered members worldwide, the network connects alums through global conferences, local chapters, industry events, and online content. Our nonprofit foundation supports economic empowerment in communities around the world. To find out more, visit pgalums.com. That's it for this week. I've been Sharad Lal. And I'm still Raman Segal. Thanks for joining Learnings from Leaders, the PNG Alumni Podcast. We'll see you next time.